Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. We are very pleased to have Dr. Brandon M. Terry here, uh, who's an assistant professor of African and African American studies and of social studies at Harvard University, and really um, one of our foremost political theorists and political philosophers of the black experience, especially black uh, intellectual thought in the 20th century um, as it relates to the civil rights era. And Dr. Terry, Brandon has a brand new book out that's a co-edited anthology uh, with Tommy Shelby, uh, who's also um, at Harvard University, philosopher, eminent, um, to shape a new world, essays on the political philosophy of Martin Luther King Jr. And he is the guest editor of a recent issue of the Boston Review, a Boston Review Forum, 50 years since Martin Luther King Jr. So it's very interesting to have you here um, at the start of Black History Month, and this is the 90th uh, birthday, would have been the 90th birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And this is the 400th anniversary of 1619 and 19 enslaved uh, Africans um, um, coming to Jamestown Colony, Virginia. Uh, so this is a very special Black History Month as well. And so uh, my first question for you is really about your work and really this very, very important anthology and special issue on Martin Luther King Jr. Because I think there's a lot of work that has been done on Dr. King, but really less so, much less so, on the political philosophy of, of Martin Luther King Jr. And so I want to I want to ask you about and talk to you about, you know, what is the argument that you and um, um, Tommy Shelby are making in this introduction? But also, when you think about Dr. King and political philosophy and political theory and sort of the intellectual history of political thought, why, why is there a lacuna? What has not been talked about? What has not been investigated in terms of Dr. King? Because they know who he is as this icon, sure, but sure. less so in terms of as this political theorist. Right. Well, first, I just want to say, you know, it's an honor to be here on the podcast. It's always uh, a pleasure to spend time with you. Uh, you know, I've learned so much from your work and it's been such an inspiration. I think for a lot of us um, who have come after, you know, waiting to the midnight hour and things like that to to, to be able to write about black power with without apology uh, and to be able to say things like these are serious thinkers with ideas that you have to consider and they're not just. Um, you know, uh, figures in your hackneyed narrative about the good 60s and the bad 60s, right? So, I mean, uh, it, it's an honor to be here. Um, in, in terms of Dr. King and political philosophy, I think you hit on exactly part of the problem. Uh, since Dr. King's death, uh, since the canonization of Dr. King as one of the sort of pantheon figures in American civil religion, He's become a figure that's almost too anodyne to even be controversial, much less provoke the revolution of values he called for in life. I want uh, you to explain to our listeners, civil religion and anodyne. Sure. So, so with civil religion, I mean, you, you, there are these figures that we treat almost as if um, they're icons in a kind of religious fashion, right? So when we tell the story of the Civil War, we often use uh, the tropes of um, Christianity to describe our relationship to Abraham Lincoln as a society. He's somebody who died for our original <laughs> sin 
of racism and in his death, you know, the blood that he spilled was able to consecrate a new founding where we, which we overcame this defect and became who we always already were, right? That's the kind of mythology. King has the same function for, for the second reconstruction. Um, we, you know, I, I sometimes will tell a story. I was, when I was in graduate school and I was trying to put together the prospectus and was saying I wanted to write about the political philosophy of the civil rights movement, uh, a professor I talked to about it said, well, what's philosophically interesting about that? We know that racism's wrong. And it, he was extremely helpful. You know, usually you think, oh man, this guy's terrible or something. But actually he helped crystallize to me what the problem was. That with a figure like King, we use him, we treat him as somebody who's innocuous, as somebody who's not controversial, who doesn't say anything to challenge us. He's a figure who's supposed to put you back in touch with who you are at your heart, who we are as the Americans. It's almost a Gunnar Myrdal story about um, this is who you are deep inside. You just need a reminder. You need somebody who can put it rhetorically in the right way. Somebody whose sacrifice can move you to act on your deepest commitments. And what I want to say is that if you go back to the books, if you go back to the sermons, if you go back to the speeches, he's saying stuff that's so far out of the American mainstream even now that it should radically unsettle us. <laughs> He's not somebody that's easily digestible. And on that score, one of the things that you um, write uh, in the introduction, um, which I wanted to really um, focus on, is you talk about, you write, quote, the neglect of King's well-considered and wide-ranging treatments of many important philosophical and political issues, including labor and welfare rights, economic inequality, poverty, lo love, just war theory, virtue, ethics, political sure. theology, just a whole range. Mm -hmm. And then you say not to mention citizenship, nonviolence, civil right. disobedience. Right. All. Right. So I want you to tackle some of that in terms of what, what can King teach us when we think about him as a political theorist mm -hmm. and philosopher. And one of the things I like about the introduction is that you all make an argument that it doesn't matter if something that King wrote might have been um, ghostwritten or something that King wrote was, because presidents have things that right, are ghostwritten. Right, 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 um, right. Big figures aren't necessarily writing line for line, right. but it still means that he's he was still a scholar. He still was a, a thinker. Still a public philosopher. I mean, you know, again, if we treat the writings of statesmen as important repositories of wisdom or philosophical insight, then we should treat the writings of Dr. King that way. Uh, you know, another kind of interpretive thing is that, you know, our, our general view is that if he put his name on it, uh, he was willing to be associated with those views in the public sphere. Those are views that he reflectively endorsed. Um, and we know a lot more about his writings than almost any black figure of the 20th century, with the possible exception of Du Bois. I mean, we just have reams and reams of sermons, notes, ephemera, books. Uh, so I think we have a lot of insight into what he actually thinks, and he's remarkably consistent, partly because he's not alive that long, right? I mean, people forget that Dr. King died at 39. He never saw a day of 40, mm -hmm. right? He was younger than Malcolm X, people forget, mm -hmm. right? Not you, brother, but you know. uh, people forget that. And so he was a young man. He had remarkably stable views about most things. Uh, and what, what was really fascinating about him, the thing that I've come to really appreciate is that we often, at least in the scholarly community or activist communities, there's this there's this idea of King as being all about a kind of charismatic authority, 
right? That he sort of stands up in front of an audience. He's mesmerizing and spellbinding with rhetoric. And he kind of um, almost bludgeons you into supporting him by just the force of his personality. And it's jarring that, that, that scholars would be kind of subject to that view, given the fact that King wrote five books, right? I mean, he published five extended arguments about why he was doing what he was doing, why it needed to be done at that particular moment, responding to counter arguments against his positions, critiquing other positions out there in the public sphere. I mean, to me, it's a model for the kind of work that activist communities could be producing, right? Or when they, at their best that they do produce, right? If you're asking, you know, and King will say things, I mean, if you're asking someone to risk their life, to lay it all on the line for a particular project, you owe them some reasons. You owe them responses to criticisms that they might have. And you owe them in good faith. You owe them with sympathy and charity and critical insight. And King, was remarkable at, at both the quality of the responses he produced and his persistence in, in, in trying to do that as part of his political project. And I want you to talk about specifically nonviolence, especially right now, nonviolence. And I also want you to talk about citizenship. But in the age of Black Lives Matter, because I look at Black Lives Matter as a social movement that drew upon both Kingian thought and sure. philosophy, but also the Black Power movements, um, structural critique of racism and inequality. Um, so when you think about King, what he theorized about nonviolence, what was the power of King's theorization about the utility of nonviolence for social movements, for black people, especially in the wake of all this racial terror? Right. And how can we use that now? Oh, well, there's, so, I mean, uh, King's insights on this question are just um, extraordinary. and. You know, I do encourage people, if they pick up the volume to, to shape a new world, to take a look at the essays from Martha Nussbaum, uh, essays from uh, Karuna Mantina, essays from uh, Lionel McPherson. I mean, the, the people who apply those insights and develop those insights into all sorts of fascinating directions concerning political emotion, concerning the, the, the so-called division between means and ends, or even foreign policy questions. But what I'll say here, just, just sort of briefly, is that, um, you know, a couple of things stand out to me. So one is that for King, nonviolence is not just a kind of moralist project. I think people often treat it as a kind of almost naive or uh, a, a naive fidelity to metaphysical commitments about the need to refrain from violence. King is very thoughtful about the relationship between means and ends in politics. Uh, if you want to achieve a society that looks something like uh, a society of, um, you know, cooperation, mutual recognition between civic equals that live on in a kind of spirit of friendship, beloved community, a beloved community, even um, if you want to deepen it, if you want that, right you are going to need a politics that gets you to that end without creating forms of resentment, uh, forms of, you know, and, and um, liberal philosophers often call it kind of modus vivendi, where people accept a state of affairs just because they're forced to, mm -hmm. right? They don't have any better options. So you don't want to bludgeon people into accepting a compromise. You want people to affirm 
the social order. You want people to have civic equality that's stable, not one that's only secured by brandishing arms at the slightest provocation. Uh, and so King thought about, he thought a lot about, well, what kind of politics are, the, are politics that are least likely to produce the emotional, um, the, the, the emotional chaos that would undermine a stable society that, that we could really affirm that would be one of justice. So, so part of nonviolence is about delivering that and really thinking seriously about the relationship between means and ends. Partly nonviolence is about, um, one of the things I've come to appreciate about his theorization of it, partly it's about throwing off the expectations of oppressive classes, right? So oftentimes oppressors will think that the, the, the violence and humiliation they dispense out will bring back more of the same. And so you actually end up having a kind of overlapping group between the, the people who are sort of really, really committed to the oppression, and then there are people who are just afraid of retaliation for a history of oppression. And King thought you could kind of split those people, that there were people whose fears you could actually dissolve or undermine by forms of politics that wouldn't exacerbate the fear of revenge and retaliation. Um, often in black power literature, you, you get this um, you get this view that uh, if we strike fear into the heart of um, the, the white public, they'll actually back down or they'll readjust um, the, the extent to which they're willing to be committed to a, a project of racial domination. But in reality, often what that does is just increase the paranoia, increase the willingness to um, to, to, to have a, a, you know, what Vesely Weaver would call front lash, right? A preemptive suppression in advance of any serious revolutionary project getting off the ground or any serious project of violence. I want you to talk about um, citizenship and then I'm gonna ask you a question on black power and then finally on this and we're gonna wrap up. Um, citizenship, because really I've, I've gained a lot of insights from your work in terms of citizenship and the civil rights movement. And in my, my forthcoming book, I, I make an argument about Dr. King and black radical citizenship and what he meant by citizenship in a tangible way. Sure. Poor people's campaign, yeah. um, you know, what does he mean in terms of food justice, housing, guaranteed income. So King is, in my mind, a policy expert too. Yeah. You know, that's something that yeah. people don't give Dr. King that's credit right. for. The end of why we can't wait is, is, <laughs> is an extended a, is a policy, policy manifesto. Absolutely, and he's influenced by Bayard Rustin, mm -hmm. A.J. Musty, yeah. um, the black social gospel tradition. John, John Kenneth Galbraith. John Kenneth Galbraith, and his son is a professor yeah, here. that's right, right. right. Um, so talk to me about King and citizenship and what we can get from King's conception of citizenship, both um, then but what's the, the gap between that conception of citizenship and what we have now right. in 2019? Uh, <laughs> more like a canyon. Uh, <laughs> so I'll just say, I'll say two things, because um, I think you laid out a lot of it so well. Um, one is that King thought that it wasn't enough to extend people formal rights and recognition, right? If you didn't have enough support to develop the capacities and, and, and resources to actually take advantage of your rights, then your rights were essentially hollow. They, they, they didn't mean much. They're not meaningless, but pretty close. So if you've got uh, the right to go into any, you know, this is an example he would use all the time. If you got the right to go into any place of public accommodation and sit down, it doesn't mean much if you're so poor that you can't order food. 
right? If you have the formal right to vote, it doesn't mean much if your district has been so gerrymandered and the uh, organization of the state government is such that your power is so um, liminal that you don't actually have any um, real voice in democratic affairs. you know, so he was he was very adamant that that we experiment with all sorts of public policy solutions to try to, you know, get what he called a, a kind of real civic equality, one that wouldn't treat people with contempt, one that wouldn't put people below other other figures in their society, um, one that made sure that people had, you know, a, a sufficient level of material resources at their disposal, one that didn't have extraordinary wealth differentials, which he thought made it very, very difficult for people to keep a sense of their dignity and keep a sense of their equal self-worth. Mm-hmm. Um, so citizenship for him was wrapped up in a much larger bundle of social protections, uh, you know, economic equality, those kinds of things. And, they, and he bakes those right into the rights concept. Now, another piece, I think people are starting to understand that story more. A piece that I think people really don't understand is extremely far from where we are right now is that King had uh, what we in in, in political theory often call a kind of agonistic conception of citizenship, which means that it involves citizens interacting and arguing with each other and contesting their relations with each other in public in a lot of different domains. So what we've tended to do is if you have a dispute with somebody else, we try to channel those things into the judicial system, right? If you don't like the way your landlord is treating you, we tell you to sue your landlord. Now that puts enormous obstacles uh, to to the poor enacting the full range of their citizenship. I mean, if you try to sue a multimillionaire landlord, you know, you see how that goes. Um, and, And what King thought was that we needed I mean, almost on the model of labor unions, right? But in many different sectors of society so that there should be tenants unions for people who rent, that there should be welfare unions for people who are subject to the bureaucratic authority of welfare administrators, that they would be able to organize together and address concerns about mistreatment. I mean, you saw that that case in New York where um, the woman in the benefits office had been uh, attacked by the police and they were trying to snatch the baby from her arms Right. That, then in a case like that, our only recourse is like now it's a it's a GoFundMe page and a lawsuit. King wanted there to be a, a, a space for all sorts of women to be able to come together and men to come together and be able to say, these are the ways I'm being treated. Have a bargaining position of power with the welfare bureaucracy and co-determine democratically better ways of exercising bureaucratic authority. The same thing with housing. In Baltimore, there's a, there's a recent case, it's a, I mean, one of the most horrifying cases I've heard, um, of women in the housing projects who needed vital repairs, right? Plumbing, heating, and the janitorial staff, the maintenance staff at the, the, the projects knew that these women had no power. And in order to get their things, you know, the, the repairs fixed, uh, these men and the maintenance staff extracted sexual favors from the women in, in, the, in the public housing units. So then in exchange for fixing your heating so that your children wouldn't go without heat, you know, you have to perform this sex act on me. So they're basically assaulting, raping these women, coercing these women 
for a thing that they're totally entitled to. And these women have such low expectations about their ability to change any of that. And you understand why they're not wrong to have low expectations. They have an accurate sense of things. Such a low expectation that they go along with it, right? That they are coerced into it, that they acquiesce to the coercion. Dr. King would see something like that and think, yeah, you, you sue those people. That's true. People got to get compensated for the suffering they've gone under. But how do you fix a problem like that long term and in perpetuity? You empower the people so that they are coming together and able to share those stories. You know, it's not just happening to me. This is something that um, is, is a much broader pro problem. The whole housing community is going to hold people accountable who do this. And we're not going to take that kind of exploitation and subjection. And that's a much broader vision of citizenship than I think anybody um, right now is really articulating and certainly that, that we associate with Dr. King. I want to ask you about Dr. King and black power, because in this anthology, you have an essay on um, the problem space of black power. And you look at a bunch of different thinkers, everybody from Robert F. Williams, um, Kwame Touré, Stokely Carmichael. Um, um, their, their their utilization of France Fanon and, mm -hmm. and and sort of you know these theories of decolonization mm -hmm. and sort of a restoration of a kind of humanity, but one that would be forged in some interpretations through violence and other interpretations not through that. But I want to talk about King and and Black Power because I think King is very interesting in the sense that he marches alongside Black Power mm -hmm. activists. Mm -hmm. uh, he has a critique of them but he never demonizes them. He's yeah. very, very good friends with Stokely Carmichael, later Kwame Ture. And in a lot of ways, King comes to, um, in my mind, start to align with certain aspects of that movement, especially when we think about self-determination, racial pride. Um, he's saying things like, you know, they're even telling us in a dictionary that black is bad sure. and all the, sure. the white things are good. And so King sounds at times, not not necessarily like some narrow nationalist, but a kind of um, um, certainly a black power cosmopolitan um, um, thinker and figure and activist. So talk to me about, you know, what do you mean by the problem space of black power and what is King's relationship to that problem space? Yeah. Well, in many ways, the, the idea of black power is representing a problem space builds on the kind of work you've done. Right. So. I think for so many people. Black power is, you know, a convenient foil. It, people want to explain it. They want to say, well, look, it's just about this is the difference between the South and the Northern ghettos or it's a difference in generations. Right. Um, or it's a difference between people who have a kind of, uh, you know, the old Christopher Lash line. Right. So that, that the, the civil rights movement in the South under Dr. King had a spiritual discipline against resentment. And the black power people lacked that spiritual discipline for complicated reasons of their family upbringing or, you know, cultural context. And therefore, they, they, they turned to the politics of revenge and resentment. I want to say, again, I think building on, 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 on so much of the work that you've done, I want to say that this is actually a wide ranging philosophical and political dispute about a whole range of issues. And to try to reduce it to something like temperament or geography, I mean, is, is offensive in a way. I mean, it, it takes these people as, um, you know, silly characters and not as people seriously trying to wrestle with some of the greatest questions of our time. They're, they're people thinking about what do the poor have political agency and under what conditions? Uh, how should we think about the nature of culture, cultural difference, right, particularly under a culture industry 
where capitalism and commercialism are part of the story. How should we think about the role of Christian ideals in black American political and cultural life? Are they a problem? Do you need a Nietzschean critique of the influence of Christianity? Or do you need some kind of rehabilitation of those ideas to meet the, the depth of the challenge of white supremacy? I mean, all of these things are on the table in such a fascinating way, life or death struggle way. And we're, you know, we kind of just throw all that to the side. So, so my idea of the problem space is just really say, look, let's take these debates as a series of problems, as problems that all hang together and realize that when people are writing at this moment, they're trying to intervene in particular debates that have real parameters and stakes and all sorts of interlocutors understand the parameters of the debate. And you even, you even go into, in your essay, strong versus weak arguments within that problem space. Yep, so you're, exactly. you're taking them seriously, but you're also being very, very critical uh -huh. and saying like, you know, here's, here's where people have made a very effective argument, mm -hmm. but here's arguments that are, that are less so. Yeah, necessarily... I'm extremely critical. Uh, I mean, you know this, I'm extremely critical of lots and lots of what goes on under the banner of black power, but we also have to be honest that there's some real deep insights there. There are people who, you know, if I, I, I'll give you one example. Um, at the time, and this is a, an inheritance from France Fanon, there are all these thinkers who try to bring the, the concept of colonialism into the United States, right, and say, you know, the ghettos of Oakland are an internal colony. And what's funny is that these people get mocked or um, dismissed. Actually, one of the first critical articles about the internal colonization thesis was written by uh, Kamala Harris's father, who's the economist at Stanford. He wrote really? one of the big critiques of this in the 1970s. Kamala Harris is yeah. the senator from California <laughs> right. who's announced right. a presidential <laughs> run. I don't know if she'll take a stand on the colonization <laughs> thesis during the campaign, but... Her father sure did. Um, and so anyway, she, you know, they, they, people dismiss this idea. But actually, if you really dig into it, I mean, there's such fascinating ideas there about how do we think about the ghetto as a kind of territorial space, a space of exception where people can exploit with impunity, where people can uh, overcharge for certain goods based on the way that racial difference, racial difference interacts with market desires, police brutality. police brutality, and what is the role of the police in a community like that? Uh, all of these things that they're getting at through the concept that we should revisit. I mean, it's an, it's an important set of insights that, that still might matter for today. Um, and so I say all of that just to say that, you know, when, I, when you treat that, that, you know, when you use the concept of a problem space, for me, what it allows you to do is take the arguments more seriously, map how people move and are distinctive within the space. So Huey Newton of the Black Panthers is not the same of El as Eldridge Cleaver of the Black Panthers, who are not the same as Amiri Baraka, mm -hmm. right? You, you, you're trying to understand the differences between people instead of just saying you're a black power person and you're not. And you get to put Martin Luther King and other figures like that really in the conversation because they were. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King really changed a lot of his ideas, changed some of his emphases, but was also critical in some important ways. And you get back to some fundamental debates about what matters um, for the legacy of black politics now. I want to I want to really close with a couple of questions. One, I'm looking at your Boston Review special issue and talk about Dr. King, you know, 50 years later. And this is a forum. And in your introduction to the forum, at one point you write, quote, in King's work, 
the point of philosophical reflection on racism is political, mm -hmm. italicized. And here's a quote um, from King. The prescription for the cure rests with the accurate diagnosis of the disease. Yes. Having the right theoretical understanding of racism, one of the, quote, triple evils, close quote, of the United States, along with militarism and poverty, is, in other words, a critical element of effective activism. So I want to, you know, you, you get into King's theory of racism has three main components. I'm going to let you explain that. I want to, you know, ask you, what do you mean by that it's political and you italicize that. And then how can King's um, critique of the triple evils of militarism, poverty, racism, which is really King is this massive anti-imperialist. He's not just the radical King at that point, he's the revolutionary King, even though it's non nonviolent. And some people think that that's a contradiction, but it's not, it's not. Um, how can we use those insights today? Because I think, when people look at King in the context of 2019, um, you think about Black Lives Matter, but I also think about March for Our Lives, yeah. Women's March, sure. immigration, mm -hmm. DACA. I think about environmental youth activists. march, environmental activism, all of it, very, very capacious. So how can that insight that he's fundamentally, it's a political philosophy, that's, but that is political, impact us now? There's actually a really great debate now amongst environmental activists um, about the use of violence. There are a bunch of uh, environmental groups who are, who are self-proclaimed disciples of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Oh my gosh. Um, and they, they basically make the argument that the climate change uh, problem has gone so far that the only way to, to you know, turn anyone is to, to use violence at this point. The only way to achieve the, the real ends of um, securing the earth for posterity is, is violence. And so it's, a, you know, these are debates that are live within many, many different segments of, you know, civil society. Um, but, you know, when I, when I wrote that, uh, you know, one of the things I was trying to get at when I say that the, the point of, the point of philosophical reflection on racism for King is political. Mm -hmm is that there are trends in the academy and um, civic life and cultural criticism uh, that some people group under the term Afro-pessimism. You know, you may or may not find that useful. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Sure. And, and, and that the, the general view there often is that no political project to defeat racism, to undermine racial oppression, uh, racial domination is ever going to be successful. Mm. Um, and they've got very, I mean, you know, depending on who you talk to, there's various different views of why that is. But the, mm. the fundamental thing is that they've got a kind of commitment to an ironic history that every attempt to try to change it ends up reconstituting the domination. It ends up bringing the domination back in a different form. You try to destroy slavery, you come back with slavery by another name and it's sharecropping, it's convict labor leasing, Jim Crow. Jim Crow. Uh, you destroy Jim Crow, well then you get the new Jim Crow, it's mass incarceration, it's ghettoization, right? So they've got this view and, you know, there are many of us who are sympathetic to parts of that, right? I mean, I'm not gonna deny that ghettoization is an enormous problem or right? something like that, but there, there's a general view from this line that the fundamentals have not changed. There's still the, the massive structure of domination and that p politics is therefore not a reasonable response or a judicious response or uh, a meaningful response to this problem. And therefore, you might ask the question, well, why are you writing about racism if you think this doesn't 
actually do anything or change anything, why I keep writing about it. And they actually, I mean, the Coates, for example, will give you a good reason. I asked him this question when he visited Harvard. Um, and he's like, well, God, to prove something to myself. Right? And I wanted to prove something to myself about whether I was right or not. Uh, so it's almost a kind of existentialist commitment to, you know, will to truth, integrity, by staring into the abyss and being able to say what it is. Uh, and I want to distinguish what King is up to from that. Right? I don't think King thinks that. I think King really thinks you can change these things. Mm -hmm. And there's a question, why does he think, given the evidence, why does he think you can change them? And part of it is he's got a different theory of racism. For him, racism is one thing that's really, really important. It's congenital deformity in the United States, he says. But it interacts with all of these different social processes, mm -hmm. technological innovation, cultural patterns, right? Things about masculinity. He sometimes writes about like, you know, Western settler colonial masculinity. He's got a particular critique of. So interacting with all of these different things that can't be reduced to anti-black racism. And the interesting thing about that is that because those social processes are fundamentally following different lines of development, their interaction causes unforeseen opportunities. Mm -hmm. There are things that might happen that you don't know <laughs> because, I mean, think about where we are now. Just in the last 10, 15 years, massive transformation in um, computing power, massive transformation in the quality of artificial intelligence, fundamental transformations in the cost and effectiveness of gene editing, fundamental transformations in social media technology, amplification of voice. These things are going to create unprecedented opportunities, some good, some bad. But you have to have a fundamental for, for King. I think so much of the hope is like an epistemic humility. He thinks you just don't know. Mm -hmm. And what hope is another one way I run the hope line that, that he that he's that I developed that he's trying to um, defend is that hope is kind of like a virtue, uh, epistemic virtue. It's it's about trying to keep an eye out for opportunities as they arise to produce justice in the world. Mm -hmm. The pessimist, because they're so confident that those opportunities will never be there, it actually dulls your ability to discern an opportunity if, you, if it were to arise. Mm -hmm. If something were to change, you probably wouldn't be able to see it mm -hmm. because you've so convinced yourself that no such thing will ever occur. Um, and I think King gives us lots of good reasons to think that's not the case. You know, he lays out extensively in all the books about the, the relationship between political economy, technology, racism. But it's all leading toward that view that the politics are always going to be possible because they're unforeseen opportunities for collective action. All right. I think um, I think we'll we'll close on that. But I'm going to ask you uh, just to, you know, briefly um, you know, where are we at now in terms of, um, you know, this is the 90th uh, birthday of Dr. Mm -hmm. King. Um, the celebrations just uh, continue to grow. We have a National African-American History Museum. We've got a King Wonderful Memorial. Um, so on some levels, you know, we have real cause for racial optimism. At the same time, mm -hmm. we've got huge cause for, for that, that, you know, even if we don't call it Afro-pessimism, but, but for some pessimistic... Um, uh, feelings about you know racial justice, citizenship, equality. Um, where are we at now, and how can King, in what way can King, you know, impact, uh, you know, 
that movement for and that struggle for justice and citizenship? Well, we are on the precipice of some really difficult times. You know, um, I think coming out of the mid 20th century, many in the United States thought we were on an inexorable march toward uh, mostly just stable, liberal capitalist democracies. That no longer looks true. Authoritarianism is rampant around the world. Uh, the European Union as a project seems on the precipice of collapse. European liberals are in retreat. Uh, the cost and um, humanitarian crises and uh, recrimination and suspicion of our military escapades for the last almost 20 years uh, have been astronomical. I mean, the, the costs for that are astronomical. And we haven't even begun to really work through the ways in which that's related to the resurgence of white nationalism in the United States, the opioid crisis in the United States. So we've got some dark days ahead. I mean, there's no question about it. The only question is, what are the resources in our traditions to confront them adequately? Uh, do we turn as people have turned in the past? Uh, you know, Ira Katz Nelson's great book, do we turn to embrace fascism and authoritarianism as a way out of these difficulties? Or do we try to defend what King called the democratic spirit? Do we try to defend the project of racial equality or do we retreat to the resurgence of new biologies of racism, right? I think if we don't defend the dignity and significance of the most critical thinkers of our tradition, if we don't ask honest and serious questions about um, the relationship between things like political economy, imperialism, racism, and I, of course, sexism, we don't ask tough questions about the ways those interact and instead just try to reduce one, you know, all of those things to, to one um, because it makes for great poetic flourish, right? Or, or, or it seems much simpler if we can kind of run the line that way. Uh, if we do those things, we're lost. And so for me, you know, this is just a kind of small contribution towards saying, look, I think there's something important here. You know, maybe 10 years of hashing it out and arguing over it, it doesn't stand up to the most sustained critical scrutiny. I doubt that, but maybe. But this is an opening salvo in <laughs> trying to push that conversation forward with some different resources because we're in desperate need of them. People need hope. They need uh, better social theory. They need a sense of uh, political possibility to be reopened. And a few figures on the American scene with the kind of authority that can break through the morass like Dr. King. So I'm frightened, but I'm hopeful in the same way. And I, in the same way I think Dr. King was. All right, we're going to leave it there. Frightened, but hopeful. This, uh, this was a great conversation. This reminds me of... Um, Dr. King's uh, speech before the American Psychological Association in September of 1967, and he asked for the same things that uh, Dr. Terry is saying here, that Brandon is saying here. He wanted scholars to really investigate in terms of social theory, social science, and you know, liberatory praxis. So this is this is really great. Uh, thank you so much for thank having. You. Uh, for being a guest on the show. It's always good to see always you. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And he's about to drop some science on uh, <laughs> some, some of our uh, students in our LBJ community here at University of Texas Austin. So this is, this is great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content 
on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.